Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Is forbidden to kill. Therefore, all murderers are punished unless they kill in large numbers and to the sound of trumpets. Voltaire. Hello and welcome to the When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One, episode 20.6, 1915. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, so I suggest we just jump right into it. I will now take you to the year 1915. The winter of 1914 had proved the lengths to which war plans could change. With the failure of the Schleifen Plan, Germany was put in the position of having to defend on the Western Front against a determined Anglo-French force that was growing more and more intimidating by the day, and having to constantly attack across a huge moving front in the East against a Russian army that seemed unending. In fact, it was almost a complete reversal of the Schleifen Plan, because instead of attacking in the West, Winter saw the reinforcement of the trenches against the British and French for the purpose of sparing German soldiers that could be used to attack in the east. As we saw in the last episode, this was because of two factors. Namely, the strategic errors of the German High Command, which had seen the German armies blunder through the disaster of the Marne, but also because that same German High Command had severely underestimated the ability of Russia to mobilise. Instead of taking 40 days, Russia took less than 30, and this, combined with the initial teething problems of the German army in Belgium, caused the Schleifen plan to fail. The problem with this was, for the German high command, very little thought had been given to fighting a war in this way. France, by the end of 1914, was meant to be defeated, and Russia was supposed to be facing the full fury of the Austro-German alliance. Britain was meant to be a non-entity, Italy was meant to be an ally. Serbia and the Balkans had almost been glossed over in this extremely black-and-white plan, which had played a major role in pushing Germany to make preventative war against Russia. Now that she was living with the consequences of the plan and was basically flying by the seat of her pants, she could do nothing but continue the war in its current course, for better or worse. However, she could do some other things too. Ottoman Turkey was on side, pressuring Italy and Britain's Mediterranean fleet, as well as hugely restricting Russian moves in the Black Sea. Bulgaria was being courted too, in the hope that she could help along some of the Central Powers' plans in the Balkans. For Britain and France, the need to act aggressively went hand in hand with the need to reacquire the French industrial regions now occupied by German forces. Thus the Allied trenches were built not for the purpose of defence, but for the purpose of providing a jump-off point for offensive manoeuvres. However, the British Secretary of State for War, Lord Kitchener, yes, that guy from the poster with the impressive moustache, believed that Britain must adapt to the circumstances of the time, and accepted that the war would be a long one involving constant battles, skirmishes and attrition. In order to fight such a war, John Mann, author of the Reader's Digest's brilliantly illustrated book on World War I, entitled The Eventful Twentieth Century, The War to End All Wars, notes what had to be done. Quote, the British who saw the German lines as, in Churchill's words, a fortress that cannot be carried by assault, also accepted the burden of extended warfare. In this, the driving force was the Secretary of State for War, Lord Kitchener, who believed that Britain's small professional army would no longer suffice. Half of those who had crossed the Channel three months earlier were casualties. Some 10,000 had been killed in Ypres alone, and another 6,000 in previous engagements. What was needed now was a mass army of volunteers. So in an upsurge of nationalism and patriotism, volunteers flooded in. 
By the end of 1914, one million men had enlisted. With troops from the Empire, Britain could now call in an army of two million. End quote. Although the miracle on the Marne had halted the German advance, German forces did not concede defeat just because the Schleifen plan had failed. Turning back into Belgium, the surrender of the critical Belgian fortress town of Antwerp on the 10th of October was a much-needed boost to German morale, as well as a victory of strategic importance for the already stretched German lines. Erich von Falkenhayn, Malka's replacement, was optimistic on Germany's ability to still achieve total victory in the West. Upon the surrender of Antwerp, then, he envisaged a huge breakthrough across the northernmost part of the Western Front by attacking en masse through the region where the town of Ypres was situated. The battle itself was launched on October 21st, 1914, and lasted until November 11th of that year. Upon its conclusion, the German advance had been stopped, and both sides had learned valuable lessons of a war that seemed to be changing all the time. But again, the unfamiliarity with the tactics and technology led to horrendous casualties on both sides. It was this battle which saw the BEF being practically crippled due to its overwhelming losses and bearing the brunt of the German offensive. It was to be the last German offensive of its kind in the area until 1918. But once it was over, German focus switched back to the east until the events of 1916 would bring that focus back again. By the end of 1914, Germany had lost in excess of 600,000 men, killed, wounded, missing or taken prisoner. A huge number, especially if one considers that this refers only to the western and not the eastern front. The first battle of Ypres is also significant because, during the final stages of it, artillery barrages were used to proceed the mass charges of infantry during the battle. Although only two hours long in duration in this instance, the success it granted the attacking Germans convinced many that artillery barrages were the way to go, and that the longer that barrage, the better. Martin Marix Evans, in his book Battles of World War I, explains the change in tactics learned and developed at Ypres in late 1914 that would bleed over into 1915. Quote, for the first time, an attack, on this occasion by the Germans, had been preceded by an artillery bombardment of significant strength. It had lasted only two hours, trivial in comparison to what would happen later, but it was a token of future tactics. The principal weapon on the battlefield in 1914 had been the rifle, with the machine gun, as foreseen by all armies, in second place. The mobility that had, in the main, characterised the conflict so far had prevented heavy artillery imposing itself except where, in the besieging of forts, warfare had happened to be static. Rain, cold, mud and exhaustion now slowed the action. In order to be able to withdraw more troops from the front line for rest and renewal, trenches were dug, which could be held by fewer men. The generals of both sides thought this a temporary arrangement, and did not foresee the influence that long-range artillery would have on what might be achieved in attack. Indeed, it would take costly and bloody experiences to drive the message home. End quote. The Second Battle of Ypres was not really a battle as much as it was a month of heavy activity across the entire northwestern front centred on the town of Ypres. The fighting once again was brutal and constant, and lasted from April the 22nd to May the 25th, 1915. It was the first use of chemical weapons, in the form of gas, on the Western Front, but it was not the first use of poison gas in the war. That accolade belonging to the Battle of Bolomov on January 31st, when the Germans on the Eastern Front unsuccessfully tried to use poison gas for the first time. The gas in this case blew back into the German lines and mostly froze due to the cold anyway, but the decision was made to try again in the West, despite its poor performance before and its condemnation in the Hague Convention. The use of it probably had something to do with Germany's desperate need for a breakthrough in the West in order to end the two-front war and focus attention on Russia in the East. The Second Battle of Ypres is covered by John Mann and sees the mention of some familiar faces from the last episode. Quote, while the British experimented in secret with the tank, the Germans tried a secret weapon of their own, gas. This made its first public appearance on the afternoon of April 22, 1915, at the opening of the Second Battle of Ypres. The first victims of gas on the Western Front, Algerians fighting with the French and Canadians, staggered back from the lines, coughing and pointing to their throats. This left a gap four miles wide, but the Germans had not been told what to do if they broke through, other than dig in. This they did, choosing safety over offence. From this salient came a narrow projection of land beyond the front. The very presence of the Germans threatened the Allies with future attacks, so Sir John French, confident of French reinforcements, ordered a counterattack, 
during which the Canadians suffered appalling losses. The British commander in the area, General Howard Smith Darien, advised withdrawal. Sir John French, who had been aggrieved at Darien ever since he had ignored his orders, yet saved the day at Gateau, accused Darien of defeatism and ordered his resignation. He then authorised the very withdrawal Darien had advocated. And so, by the 25th of May, the Second Battle of Ypres was over, with the loss of two miles of ground and 60,000 British and Commonwealth lives. End quote. The gas had a devastating impact on men who had never been informed of its possibilities, effects or dangers. Seeing their comrades literally drowning in front of them and seeing the clouds of yellow gas drifting towards them, many fled rather than allow themselves to be caught in the trap. However, it wasn't just the Allies that were left dumbfounded by this new weapon. The Germans themselves advanced slowly, unsure of the success of the attack or of the safety of the now empty enemy trenches. Many thousands died awful deaths from a weapon that never should have seen the light of day. Huge propaganda usage was brought to bear against the Hun for his barbarous use of gas, but by September 1915 in the Battle of Luce, the Allies were using it too. It was as if war could not be defined by rules. Once one side in desperation broke them, all were free to do so, and yet still retain the moral high ground. It was a time of horrendous suffering on both sides, with the Canadian regiments in particular making a real name for themselves among the carnage, and really set the tone for 1915. It would be a year of distinction for Britain's dominions, and in another region of the world, it was the Australian and New Zealand units, collectively known as the Anzacs, who would create for themselves a national identity, just like the Canadians had done, out of blood, sweat and determination, not because of good command, but in spite of it in the newest front of the war, Gallipoli. I am quite aware that Australian and New Zealand fans of the podcast make up a good proportion of the downloads. I'm also aware that you guys, like me as an Irishman, are probably well sick of the mainstream coverage of your country's involvement in the war. As Dominion buddies, we've got to stick together, so I hope you won't science switch off when a non-national tries to tell you about your nation's history, as I often do when an American or Brit tries to tell me about Irish history, or that their great-great-great-grandfather's sister's cousin's step-niece's great-aunt's brother was Irish. My point is, as former colonies of Britain, we like our history told properly, with a little bit of romanticism thrown in, but not too much to make it sickeningly sweet or detract from the actual stories of bravery and courage that are ever-present in the Gallipoli campaign. With that small, whatever you want to call it, out of the way, let's get into the meat of the campaign. Just as the Western Front was enduring the Second Battle of Ypres, the decision was made to land a Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, or MEF, on the Dardanelles Straits. This decision was, as always, one made in the light of strategy, but was an operation carried out with the usual amateurish poise and naive expectations that seemed to characterise most joint Allied operations led against the so-called weaker members of the Central Powers. Martin Marix Evans recounts the decision to land at Gallipoli. Quote, the war in the Middle East threatened the Suez Canal. The Ottoman Empire stretches far south as the Persian Gulf, and fighting in the region endangered oil supplies, as well as lines of communication to India and the Far East, adding to the encouragement to conflict the cutting of contact with Russia had given. Thus, the idea formed of making a mighty strike at Turkey through the Dardanelles, and reopening the routes to Russia, as well as encouraging waverers in Eastern Europe to refrain from an alliance with Germany. The French were the first to suggest action in this theatre with an expedition to Salonika, at the head of the Aegean Sea, to hit at Austria-Hungary in concert with Romania and Bulgaria. Joffrey opposed dilution of the forces on the Western Front and Kitchener agreed the troops could not be spared for so large an enterprise. Something smaller, perhaps, would prevent Turkey from striking southwards. On the 2nd of January, Russia appealed for a diversionary attack to take pressure off their troops in the Caucasus, where the Turks had attacked. Kitchener speculated about the Dardanelles, and Churchill took up the idea enthusiastically. End quote. Initially, it was hoped that the troops may not be needed at all, that old British and French warships could make it through the Dardanelles and pound the capital into dust with relentless fire. But the Turks had mined the straits, and when the Allies moved through it, the ships began to sink, so they pulled out, and High Command reasoned that a landing force was necessary. Nearby in Egypt happened to be the fresh Australian and New Zealand army corps, hence Anzac, and thus it was determined to use these men, 
fresh from their homelands in the farthest corners of the Empire, to strike at the supposedly soft underbelly of the Ottomans. In between the time that proved a landing force was necessary, and the time a landing force actually landed, the Turks reinforced their lines, somehow getting word that an attack on their shores was forthcoming. The month in between the decision and the action was a godsend for the Turks and the nail in the coffin for the Allies, since the Prussian-born Otto Lehmann von Sanders was back to command the Turks following an absence in the early part of 1914. This man is probably solely responsible for the Turk victory at Gallipoli. What he did for the Ottomans as a military reformer and reorganiser and retrainer was unmatched by anything done in the Ottoman armies in years and it was under his direction that the Ottomans planned to resist the Allied landings. Landings which had never been attempted on such a scale, with such technology, or in such an area before. A fact which brought problems for both sides, as Martin Evans explains. Quote, No such operation had been undertaken previously. Landings against unentrenched or undefended shores, perhaps, but this was to be the first of a new kind of military operation, that was to reach its zenith at Iwo Jima and Normandy in World War II. Not only were the presidents lacking, and thus the skills required, but there was also a very substantial ignorance of the place they planned to attack. Maps were primitive or lacking entirely. The War Office had issued a Gallipoli map in 1908 at a scale of 1 to 250,000, or 1 inch to 3.95 miles, which gave a general impression of the area, but which was not sufficiently detailed enough for operational planning. End quote. Von Sanders had arrived to take command on March 26, 1915, just in time to ready the Turks for the Allies, who arrived on cue on April 25th of that year. The attack began at 5am that morning and was an unmitigated disaster from the get-go. By 9.30am the attack itself had stalled, but the various division commanders had been supplied with such poor information that no one was ever told to stop unloading men from the safety of their ships to the hell on earth that was taking place on the landing beaches. With the Turks having practically uninterrupted fields of fire from high trenches and cliffside batteries, and with little or no cover on the beaches themselves, those that were not cut down initially were pushed up on the beach further by the weight of their own landing forces behind them, and more and more men squashed themselves onto the beach to become sitting ducks for the hidden Turks. Entire divisions were exterminated or were thinned so completely that they were never used again. For the first day, man after man was packed in front of the firing line despite ignored shouts from the men on shore that there was no room and no chance of a breakthrough. The French, in contrast to the Anzacs and Brits, landed successfully further south at a place called Cum Cali, but were withdrawn and redeployed by the 26th due to the critical need for more men on the other landings. Nothing was gained on the Allied side, and as the Allies settled in for what seemed to be conditions similar to Flanders, on the iron-hard ground, without any cover and with an apparently apathetic command, summer heat claimed many lives on both sides, due to both problems with supply, and by the time the autumn rains came, the Ottomans had 15 divisions in place to defend against further attacks. But there would be no further attacks. A limp attempt to reinforce the Allies in September with five divisions was the last effort made to save the whole endeavour, and by December 1915 the decision had been made to evacuate the whole force that Commander Ian Hamilton had so enthusiastically brought to Gallipoli in April 1915. I'll let Martin Evans wrap up the campaign with the numbers. Quote, in the campaign as a whole the losses have been heavy. The Allies lost some 252,000 men, and the Turks probably some 50,000 men. What had begun as a bold, imaginative initiative had decayed into a stalemate, in part because the operation was beyond the technical capability of the Allies, having ineffective artillery support and unsophisticated communication systems, but more as a result of leadership being attempted from afar, and a failure to devolve decision-making, together with the knowledge required for the exercise. The result was delay when speed was needed, indecision when determination was required, and failure when success was, on more than one occasion, obtainable. End quote. Gallipoli will always stand as one of the greatest military disasters of World War I. It is superseded only by the Somme in terms of errors made and lives lost. But it also had a greater impact. The loss of so many from countries previously seen as lacking a formal identity granted Australia and New Zealand their place on the international stage following World War I, 
and ensured that a sense of nationalism would emerge from them over the coming years. This change in the Dominion's character was brought about by sacrifice and suffering at the hands of their mother country, as John Mann explains. Quote, the suffering they endured, particularly at Gallipoli, contributed to a new self-image, that of the tough, independent, irreverent digger, a very different creature in the Australian and New Zealand view from the arrogant, class-bound British. Increasingly, after 1918, home was down under and not the old country. End quote. 1915 was meant to be the year Germany broke through to Paris and saved the Schleifen plan, and it was also meant to be the year France got its lost industries and land back. But in reality, it was a year of continued battles that served only to grind both sides down with little or no result. During the Second Battle of Ypres, the French launched the Second Battle of Artois on the 9th of May, which lasted until the 15th before French forces retreated back to their original positions. A lull in the fighting was unofficially declared as both sides contemplated their next move and reinforced their lines. September 1915 saw a number of simultaneous attacks launched across the Flanders trenches, with the Battle of Luz, Second Battle of Champagne and Third Battle of Artois coinciding with one another and rounding off the year of conflict in November 1915. None saw much gains and all bore witness to the kind of tactics, or lack thereof, implemented by the Allies as Joffrey attempted to exploit the final chances of numerical superiority over the Germans that he had in the year. While Lord Kitchener's army, those hundreds of thousands of volunteers sent from the home islands, bolstered the British numbers before being fed to the relentless hunger of the battlefield. New theatres were opened up as new countries entered into the fray. Italy and Bulgaria made 1915 their year and caused immediate waves. Italy, by opening a new front in the Alps, which diluted Austrian power in Russia, and Bulgaria, by invading Serbia from the east and eliminating it as a country in the Balkans, with some Austrian help. Let's take our focus away from the Western Front and focus on these two angles now. Italy had secretly reneged on its commitments to the Triple Alliance as early as September 3rd, 1914, in which it negotiated a policy of early neutrality with Britain. In the Treaty of London on April 26, 1915, often called the London Pact due to its referral to the gains promised to the other Allied powers, most notably Serbia, who was in absentia, in return for their declaration of war against the Central Powers. With the signing of the treaty on April 26th, Italy was promised territorial gains it had coveted since the establishment of Unredeemed Italy, or Italia Irredenta, in the 1880s in response to Austrian occupation of what was believed to be ethnically Italian land. Nationalism, of course, plays a considerable part in the Italian switch to the Allied side, and the belief that Austria was the natural enemy of Italy after centuries of occupation under its Habsburg Empire seemed enough to whitewash the history of Italy as a member of the Triple Alliance. It was a pretty predictable face turn for Vienna, since divisions had already been prepared for deployment to the Tyrol region by the time Italy officially declared war on Austria on May 23, 1915. The Italian entry into the war merely served to show the level to which the whole war had escalated since July 1914, when Serbian terrorists provided Austro-German strategists with the excuse they needed. Bringing the attention back to that region was Bulgaria, who on October 8, 1915 declared war on Serbia and invaded it from the east, and received in turn declarations of war from Italy, France and Britain. Two days earlier, on the 6th, the Allies had landed a force of 35,000 in Salonika, or Thessalonica, ignoring Greek neutrality in order to come to the aid of the Serbs. But they were too late, and despite the successful actions against the Bulgarians earlier in the month, the Anglo-French force retreated into Salonika to fight another day and pressure the Greek government, while also hoping to persuade Romania to join the Entente side. The failure of the Allies to aid the Serbs meant that Serbia was left nakedly exposed to an Austro-Bulgarian offensive, and 600,000 troops poured into Serbia, pushing its inhabitants towards Albania, where they would be withdrawn from the coast in one of the grimmest scenes in World War I. 250,000 marched towards the Adriatic in the hope that they and their king could live to see another day. But their forces, by now consisting of teenage boys and old men, were assailed by hostile Albanians and pursued relentlessly by the resentful ethnicities that had chafed against them in the previous Balkan Wars. The country was thereafter divided between Austria and Bulgaria, 
while Serbia's erstwhile ally Montenegro heroically covered the Serbian retreat as best as they could, before being overrun themselves in early 1916. The whole scene was one of chaos and national depression for the Serbs, and the whole venture was etched so deeply in the national memory that in the civil war of the 1990s, atrocities were committed in the name of revenge for the killings of Serbs in Albania. In short, the Balkans in this campaign was writing the bloody chapter of its history that would haunt it for the remainder of the century. Serbia's main ally Russia was in no position to aid it in 1915, as the Eastern Front became soaked in the kind of needless losses that would come to characterise it for the years to come. The initial panic in the German High Command had come from the Russian advance into East Prussia before the plans had anticipated. But by 1915, Austro-German officials were looking at the Eastern Front as the primary area where their forces could attack, while the Western Front was, for Germany at least, one of almost constant defence with entrenched forces and little actual... Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Will gain. By bringing the majority of the forces to bear, and under the command of highly capable generals like Hindenburg and Ludendorff, the Austro-German armies blasted away at Russia's brave but poorly equipped mass armies for the majority of 1915. By the end of the year, Russia was retreating into its vastness, but the German order was not one of advance towards Moscow or capturing of St. Petersburg, but one of strategic victory and repeated exploitation of the disadvantaged Russian situation. The strategy paid off for the central powers, as the weight of losses and lack of required materials began to take their toll halfway through the year, and Russian high command was faced with retreat as the only alternative, leaving behind the rapid gains they had made in the beginning of September 1914. The Battle of Tannenberg had not actually taken place in Tannenberg, but upon acquiring the victory against the Russian forces in August 1914, a Lieutenant Colonel Max Hoffman had suggested that the village of Tannenberg be reported as the scene of the success, recognising a huge propaganda victory when he saw one. As John Mann explains, quote, Hoffman suggested that the success be reported from the village of Tannenberg, where, in 1410, the Teutonic Knights, the spearhead of German medieval imperialism, had been defeated by a Polish-Lithuanian army. This was a masterstroke of propaganda. For the Battle of Tannenberg, as it became known, reassured Germany that after 500 years, the Germans had revenged themselves against the forces of Eastern barbarism. To the German public, Hindenburg and Ludendorff were saviours. And thus began the Ballad of Hindenburg and Ludendorff, which would carry on for the next four years. But Germany's ally in the early stages of the war did not fare so well. Austria-Hungary's chief of staff, Konrad von Hotzendorf, the aggressive general who was largely responsible for Austria's military posturing in the previous months, had seriously overestimated his country's ability to fight a war, and had seriously underestimated the strength of Russia. In September 1914, Austrian forces blundered into a Russian force twice its size, as both had become lost in the forest near the modern-day Polish border, 
and both armies fought to a standstill in what became known as the Battle of Lemberg until the Russian army, defeated the previous week, returned to the fray on the Austrian army's flank. Only by reading uncoded messages were the Austrians able to escape, but by then they had collectively lost 350,000 men in their first and last solo offensive of the war. From here on in, they would receive heavy support from Germany, and Ludendorff, Hindenburg and Hoffmann provided a key strategic eye and proved very effective at holding the Russians at bay down south while Germany advanced to the north. By the end of 1914, one thing was certain. Austria could not be relied upon to hold the Russians by itself, and additionally, the western and eastern fronts depended and created situations for the other. Staying behind defences for the winter of 1914, Spring 1915 brought the next offensive, as John Mann explains. Quote, the next initiative came in spring 1915, when Germany, securing the trenches on the Western Front, could afford to look eastwards, attempt to rescue Austria from further threat, and knock Russia out of the war, thereby releasing more men that could sway the balance in the West. The best place to cut through the Russian Front was Galicia, between the Upper Vistula and Carpathian Mountains. Through March and April, troops trains rolled across Germany, carrying 14 divisions and 1,000 guns to cement two Austrian armies along a 28-mile front north of the Carpathians between Gorlice and Tarnow. On May 1st, German troops ran across no man's land and dug in. The next day, the largest bombardment seen so far on the Eastern Front flattened the Russian trenches and scattered the soldiers, who were so poorly armed that the living had to seize rifles from the dead. End quote. This was what a breakthrough was meant to look like, and the now Austro-German steamroller surged forward and seized Premisel and Lemberg on the 22nd of June. Now the breakthrough was 80 miles into the Russian lines, and it began to turn north. The situation is easy to imagine, as those Russian soldiers still on the outskirts of East Prussia became aware of the vast advance of Austro-German soldiers to their south and now coming up behind them and had to retreat before the gap could be closed. As this was happening, Hindenburg encouraged Ludendorff to advance from East Prussia towards the soon-to-be-trapped Russians, in order to pressurise them further. Austro-German mouths watered at the results such a victory would bring, since the entire attacking Russian army of August 1914 would be swallowed up if success were achieved. However, the Austro-Germans were prevented from decisive victory by the poor transport network of Russia's European territories, and the chance to surround the Russians slipped away with the Russian escape. The Austro-Germans had already taken in excess of 400,000 Russian prisoners, but they did not halt the advance, believing the Russian situation to be a dire one, and helping to exploit their enemy's weakness in command and supply. The Austro-German forces could never snap the jaws shut quickly enough on the poor Russian railways, but the threat of their advance did throw Russia into a panic even while Russian soldiers fought in the Caucasus and German soldiers fought in Flanders. By mid-October 1915, Russia had conceded territory the size of France in their epic retreat and had lost 750,000 men, to add to a total loss of 1.7 million men since the war had begun the year before. Its high command was in chaos, as the Tsar was the commander-in-chief without a single iota of practical military initiative or experience. As the military command worsened, so too did the domestic situation. For Russia's peasants and farmers and factory workers, the oppression was turned up to 11 to discourage costly protests, and the police were given emergency powers to arrest and shoot anyone on the spot. The country simmered with discontent as the Tsar and his family publicly lavished themselves with gifts and grand ceremony, adding to the fury that would boil over in 1917, but which for now remained at a critical temperature. There was a silver lining to the losses for Russia though, because on the strategic hand, Germany now had to garrison the territory it had acquired, while on the patriotic moral front, Russia now had a mission to liberate its lost provinces. For the moment though, Russia still seemed paralysed, and German chief Falkenhayn mistook the apparent initial weakness of the Russians as the common trend, and left the Eastern Front to its own devices in early 1916 for the planned assault at Verdun. As we'll see, the underestimation of Russia's militaristic and materialistic situation would come back to bite the Austro-German cooperative in the summer of 1916, just as the greatest offensive of the war, the Somme, was taking place in the West. Around the world, war was raging at a feverish pace. 
colonies face down colonies, as Germany's Africa faced the might of the Anglo-French African colonies. Britain pressed over a million Indians into service, a logistically convenient strategy that enabled Britain to pressurise the Ottomans in Persia. Britain in particular really got to flex its colonial muscles in the opening stages of World War I. As soldiers from Ireland, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Canada and India all fought on the Western Front. It was a statistic not unnoticed by Germany, who hoped that by targeting Britain's empire in its most vulnerable spots, i.e. Ireland, and its need for naval supply, it could force it to the negotiating table. We'll see the fruits of such a strategy in the next episode, as well as the British plans for sowing discontent among the Ottoman provinces, where Arab tribesmen dreamt of an independent Arab Muslim state, and British agents, chief among them a certain T.E. Lawrence, sought to exploit the volatile situation. To the Far East and Asia, Germany's Asian acquisitions were the first to fall, most famously with Tsing Tao in the early stages of the war. Captured by the Japanese, the defenders of the port were apparently less than inspired by Kaiser Wilhelm II's urge to hold out, which included the memorable chestnut, I'd rather lose Berlin to the Russians than Tsing Tao to the Japanese. For those neutrals around the world, the idea that the war was a global one was felt in the hit to their exports and imports since anything traded with Germany by sea suddenly became scarce due to the almost impenetrable British naval blockade of the country, which had a far more profound effect on the country than history has really acknowledged. 1915 was the year that Britain struggled to coordinate the efforts of a sustained blockade against Germany, while also balancing the opinions of those neutrals who wished to trade with Germany. Because of this balancing act, it wouldn't be until 1916 that the blockade was properly conducted, and it could really start to hurt Germany because 1916 was the year Britain hoped to break through the German lines, and British statesmen knew that in order to do this, it could not afford to take the opinion of the neutrals into account, not even the United States, if that opinion affected its ability to defeat Germany. The conflicting policies of the Foreign Office and Admiralty are covered by Eric Osborne in his book Britain's Economic Blockade of Germany, 1914-1919. Quote, These improvements in technology were undermined by the Foreign Office's lack of success in its negotiations, with the neutral powers over controlling their trade with Germany. Coupled with this were the added pressures of maintaining satisfactory neutral relations and the practical requirements of war that handicapped the entire blockade effort. The Foreign Office consistently watered down the measures it implemented in the face of neutral pressure, consequently undermining its own efforts. In this atmosphere, 1915 was a period of increasing frustration and strain between the military and civilian branches over the blockade and the proper course to pursue. The Navy and public opinion in general became critical of the entire effort, while the Admiralty, which cooperated with the Foreign Office, was caught in the middle. It had to support the government, but at the same time it realised that the blockade was largely ineffectual. The criticisms of naval officials on the one hand, and the civilian response to this on the other, dominated the year and produced some positive results, but much of it was not realised until 1916. We will see the significant damage that the blockade does to Germany over the coming years, but for now, in 1915, the problem was making sure Britain did not ostracise any potential friends or friendly neutrals in the process of cutting Germany off from the world a penalty which would have been reminiscent of the Napoleonic days when Napoleon was able to construct the Continental League based out of the British unpopularity with neutrals during wartime. The last thing Britain needed was for Germany to appear the victim, or for her to bring on side strategic allies across the Atlantic. Sir Llewellyn Woodward, in his book Great Britain and the War of 1914-18, notes on the situation, quote, The Hague Conference of 1907, in permitting the use of armed merchantmen as auxiliary cruisers, had gone some way towards reintroducing privateering. The meaning of an effective blockade had changed since 1856, when it had meant a line of ships stationed outside the ports of an enemy. In 1914, owing to the invention of torpedoes, mines and long-range guns, such a close blockade was impossible. The British were not, in fact, enforcing a full blockade, since they did not close the North Sea to Dutch or Scandinavian ships. They exercised their legal right to search neutral shipping, but often did not enforce the penalty of confiscating the cargo and ship if contraband was discovered. The British government bought the cargo and returned the ship. They acted in this way in order to avoid offending or causing too much loss to neutrals, and especially to American merchants and ship owners. End quote. Just like a hundred years ago, Britain was concerned that its major enemy would be resupplied by neutrals. 
and thus endeavoured to stop any suspicious items getting through that may be used in war, otherwise known as contraband. If you'll remember, it was this British policy and the underhanded, arrogant way in which they conducted themselves that led in a major way to the War of 1812 with America. This time, Britain would be far more careful in its dealings. It goes without saying that they could ill afford war with America while Germany held the continent to ransom, but the worries surrounding what was okay and what wasn't okay to let through the blockade, and what America could potentially do to Britain's blockade, were very much real, as Woodward explains, quote, Nevertheless, serious difficulty arose with the United States over the definition of contraband. Here also, the rules of war at sea were necessarily vague. The Declaration of Paris, for example, had used the term contraband without defining it. The interest of countries in the past had differed according to their naval power and the nature and direction of their trade. The same country might take as a belligerent a very different view of contraband when it was neutral. There was no doubt about commodities such as arms, ammunition, military and naval stores. These were absolute contraband. But before 1914, a large category of goods were recognised as conditional contraband. Conditional contraband were goods not necessarily used for war, though they might so be used. Such articles were contraband on condition that they were not intended for use during war. In the days of small armies, employing for the purposes of war only a relatively small quantity of goods, a distinction between absolute and conditional could be made without difficulty. It was, however, almost impossible, when an offensive in war had become such a large-scale economic undertaking, to distinguish between conditional and absolute contraband. End quote. Because Britain could never be 100% sure of the intentions of the goods being brought past its blockade, it had to judge for itself the intentions of either the ship or that ship's nationality. It was vital not to make too many mistakes and to investigate thoroughly those ships' contents, because otherwise the whole endeavour would be a pointless waste of resources. The German reaction to this blockade in fact eased the pressure off Britain somewhat, at least diplomatically, because Germany was not planning on establishing a continental league, it was instead planning on responding with force. But Germany had not learned the lessons of Britain's past, because instead of maintaining a careful attack on solely British and French vessels, Germany attacked everything due for British and French shores, a tactic which, just like in 1812, would bring America's force to bear on whoever was responsible. This is covered by James Clement and Thaddeus Russell in their book The Homefront Encyclopedia, United States, Britain and Canada in World Wars I and II. Just look at me with all my sources. Quote, because Germany's surface fleet was outclassed by Britain's surface fleet, German strategists announced that they were going to enforce the blockade of Britain with submarines. In February 1915, Kaiser Wilhelm II announced that German U-boats would attack without warning any Allied ships, including warships, merchant vessels and ships filled with refugees around the British Isles. While the clearly understood rules of warfare from the period required that warring powers were to allow passengers and crews to abandon non-warships before sinking them, under this policy of unrestricted warfare, U-boat commanders gave no such warnings, and thus condemned thousands by drowning. End quote. Just like World War II, such unrestricted submarine warfare, under the by then head of German Admiralty Admiral Dernitz, only served to alienate and antagonise the remaining neutrals in the world. Diplomatically, it was a hugely damaging venture for Germany in both wars, taken at a time of crisis and out of what they believed to be a necessity, but which had the long-term effects of adding to the internationally held idea that Germany was the immoral, barbaric menace on the continent who would try to achieve victory by any means necessary. Germany hadn't done itself any favours by 1914, by first invading the country and then massacring thousands of Belgian civilians to the sounds of protest and condemnation in America. But it was this policy of unrestricted warfare that really pushed the US over the edge, and created a diplomatic rift between the two powers that never fully healed. However, if short-term military gains were all Germany was looking for, in its new submarine warfare it found a surprising level of success, considering its home fleet was stuck in port. As Clement and Russell explain, quote, The U-boats proved relatively effective, sinking almost 750,000 tons of British shipping in the first six months of 1915 but the Germans remained concerned about the effect that the U-boat campaign was having on the United States, where President Woodrow Wilson was urging Americans to be neutral in thought and deed. By their very nature, U-boats broke what Americans saw as the rules of warfare. More importantly, German U-boat commanders had orders to attack any British ships and any ships carrying war materials to England. 
As many Americans were trading with England and France between 1914 and 1916, that trade increased from 824 million to 3.2 billion, and as many others were travelling aboard British ships, Germany's policy of unrestricted warfare inevitably meant that American lives were going to be lost and American interests damaged. End quote. Even though Germany was seeing some gains in these policies, continuing them was simply too controversial and unrestricted warfare was ordered to a halt in September 1915, despite the calls for its continuation by Tirpitz. The major event that had tipped the balance in favour of ending the policy was the sinking of the Lusitania, an event covered by Clement and Russell. Quote, an initial turning point in submarine warfare came in late 1915, after a number of U-boat attacks on Allied ships had outraged the international community. The most shocking was the May 7th sinking of the Lusitania, a British passenger vessel. While the Lusitania was actually carrying munitions, and while Germany had actually placed advertisements in the New York Times warning travellers to avoid the liner, Americans were horrified by the attack and by the deaths of 1,198 passengers, 128 of them Americans, and by the depictions of the attack they saw in many popular movies and cartoons. In response to international condemnation of the U-boat campaign, in September 1915 the Kaiser called off unrestricted submarine warfare. End quote. The decision to end unrestricted submarine warfare had been made in the same circumstances as the decision to implement it. It was made in a time of crisis, and reflected Germany's make-it-up-as-we-go-along strategy that had characterised Germany's conduct since the Schleifen plan failed after the Battle of the Marne, and new ways for winning the war was needed. We'll see in the next episode how the pressures for resuming the unrestricted submarine warfare moved the Kaiser to put it back on in March 1916, just six months after previously cancelling it, and that this decision put the nail in the coffin of the American-German friendship. 1915 is rightly characterised as a year of stalemate, at least in the West. It was the first full year of war, the year when a series of costly offensives by the Allies in the West made clear the need for a more effective strategy, while the Austro-German victories in the East seemed to portray Russia not as an effective military power, but as a sponge which could soak up countless central power lives and exchange them for Russian ones. Poison gas was seen in use for the first time. Illusions about how war was a gentleman's game were broken, as damp trenches and cratered battlefields appeared more like hell on earth than a beautiful, heroic or glamorous tale. It was the year that Britain mobilised its population for Kitchener's new army of raw recruits, before conscription would be introduced in the following years. For France it was a continued year of attrition, which proved that the German nightmare of 1870 had been a once-off and that, although France was fighting for her survival within her own borders, she was not destroyed or defeated as she had been in the awful year before. For Italy, 1915 was the year she came out of the closet and admitted what the Austro-German camp had suspected all along, that she was in cahoots with the Allies, and a new front across the Alps was opened up in which Austria committed practically all of her reserves, but in which neither side really managed to achieve anything. For the Ottomans, 1915 was the year that they had proven themselves to the Allies and to the Central Powers. Turkey was no soft underbelly, and the lives wasted on her shores were a testament both to Allied strategic deficiency as much as Ottoman fortitude, which had been thoroughly rebuilt following the German aid in the years before. In the Balkans, Serbia's collapse was the realisation of years of Austrian planning, and Bulgaria now stood securely with her as an ally in the Balkans, ready to place more pressure on the Russians. In the camp of the neutrals, America was beginning to lean more towards the Allied camp, as previous German acts had confirmed to the pro-Allied camp in America the need to help rid Europe of the Imperial German menace. But not yet. South America saw Brazil lean towards the Allied camp too, and would eventually follow the American lead in 1917 by declaring war on the Central Powers. For Japan and China, the former had taken advantage of German absenteeism to capture many of its territories, while the latter remained a de facto subject power to the West, and thus acted accordingly. Within the empires around the world, perhaps Britain saw the most significant contribution. India, initially feared for its potential to revolt, actually demonstrated a great deal of loyalty by committing over a million men to the British war effort, while Australian, New Zealand, Canadian and South African troops would forge their own identities out of their sizeable contributions and sacrifices to the British war effort. Perhaps only Ireland failed to acquire an identity for itself out of its war contributions. 
though the war was initially a popular one due to the belief that Britain was coming to the aid of a small neutral country, Belgium, and that this was the right and honourable thing to do, but we'll see in the years to follow how this relationship changes. It was the man in the trench, the average soldier, who really woke up to the realities of war. In Britain in particular, its professional army had been all but wiped out in the beginning of 1915, and those veterans were replaced by recruits who approached war with romanticism and adventure, but who soon realised the reality. It was upon the realisation of this reality that great literary works on both sides were created, as the horrors, the false promises of glory, and the needless loss of life spurred men to create tragic poetry that still rings true today. One of these poems, In Flanders Fields, was written by one John McRae upon presiding over the funeral of his close friend after the Second Battle of Ypres. Written on the 3rd of May 1915, it went on to become one of the most popular and quoted poems of the war, and its reference to poppies led to that flower becoming the symbol of Remembrance Day every November. I'm not exactly sure how to present this to you, but I do feel like the best way to take this is if you imagine the circumstances of the time while I read this. The tragedy, the horrors, the fear of death that haunted the average soldier before he went over the top. Or, in McRae's case, the fear that he would live to see all his friends pass away. The poem reads as follows. In Flanders fields the poppies blow, between the crosses row on row, that mark our place and in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead, short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow. Loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw. The torch be yours to hold it high, if ye break faith with us who die. We shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed this look at 1915 through what was hopefully a different angle than you expected. As usual, let me know what you thought through the usual channels. Don't forget to be fit, and I will see you next time for the defining year of the war, 1916. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 